This episode of the Asians Represent podcast is brought to you by our amazing Patreon supporters and subscribers on Twitch. Uh, thanks to their support, we're able to take all of this extra audio from the past season of the Asians Represent podcasts, so that's episodes 35 to 45, and return them to our public podcast feed. Moving forward in 2022, thanks to their support, we'll be able to do monthly drops of Asians Represent episodes onto this feed. We're super excited. Now, if you are a patron of the podcast, don't worry. Our extended feed will continue, and our behind-the-scenes look at Dungeons & Asians, no dice, no problem, will still be a Patreon exclusive. That said, we are so excited for everyone to be able to access this episode in audio format. Uh, it's been quite a journey and quite a transformation of Asians Represent. We are constantly evolving, and we are so glad that our community is growing and here for this journey with us. That said, let's get to the episode. It's time to talk about ninja. It's time to talk about ninja. Uh, oh, ninjas! Ninjas have just <laughs> appeared. Um, I have been really excited about this episode for a really long time. Um, and by a really long time, I mean for two weeks because a that's weeks, yeah. <laughs> uh, because that's what we came up with this idea. <laughs> that's what we came up with this idea. And by we, I mean Adam Ali and I. And Adam Ali and I were talking about you know future episodes and things that we could be doing better on Asians Represent. And Adam Ali said, you know what we should do? We should try to have. Um, I think it's really valuable to have episodes where we were like, hey, instead of painting Asians as like a monolith, let's say let's just focus on Japan or China. But another thing we should be doing is, you know, like talking about various Asian cultures with people with lived experience in the same episode. And mm -hmm. Adam Ali was like, what if we talked about like ninjas and like assassins, like the Hashashin and like the history of both of them and how they're portrayed. And I was like, this is a dope idea. Let's do that. And then Adam Ali was like, great, let's do this date. And I was like, awesome. And then Adam was like, I can't do it. And I was like, <laughs> that's okay. Because as we were doing research into like the ninja boom in like the 80s and all the different depictions of ninjas in TTRPGs, I think we realized that this is like a huge topic. Likewise, the Hashashin and portrayals of assassins and Islam is in and of itself a very complicated topic. So that episode proposal ended up being split into two mega episodes. So when Adam Ali is available, we are going to talk about assassins, uh, historical assassins. Um, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be really cool. Um, I would love to try to bring in uh, a guest. Um, but the guest I have in mind isn't Asian. So we as a community would have to talk because their expertise is, is well suited to this. Um, but we could talk off air about that. But that said, we're here to talk about ninjas. What is a ninja? And why are we talking about ninjas? Steve, we we read Oriental Adventures in its entirety. And yeah. then Steve, Emma, we read all of Legend of the Five Rings yeah. in its entirety. And we talked about ninjas. And Steve even cosplayed as a scorpion clan. Um, are they specifically referred to as ninja, though? They aren't. They aren't. So they, but they're they like aren't, mysterious. Yeah. But they're mysterious. Yeah. And I would love to talk about espionage and mm. subterfuge and, like, you know, intelligence gathering. That was I would the other to thing, too, when it's like ninjas and hashashin. I was like, ninjas aren't necessarily assassins. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like, why yeah. don't we, why don't we, like, start with that? Like, 
who were ninjas? Because when <laughs> before we went live, we were talking about the greatest ninja of all time, the Beverly Hills Ninja. Yeah, um, just yeah. kind of brought that up. Um, <laughs> but like, that's not a ninja. What is a ninja? Like, it's you see ninjas in like a ton of media. Like mm-hmm. we were talking about Naruto, and we were talking. Steve was talking about Ninja Scroll. Yeah, and you know we were talking about Beverly Hills Ninja, and then we were also talking about like the three ninjas. Oh my god, yeah. And I played a lot of dating sims that where you date historical figures that were ninjas. Super popular, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the thing. Like, um, we're probably going to focus on, like, the D&D gaming representations of ninja. But, like, Japan is straight up obsessed with the idea of, like, shinobi as well. Shinobi ninja type stuff, too perhaps slightly different they both feed off each other but like yeah this isn't just a a one person or the other like a whole lot of people are real into ninja yeah yeah people are like super into ninja but like i think it's interesting to see the the sort of popularity of ninjas in like japanese pop culture and then kind of contrasted to the popularity of ninjas in like western culture and western Mm. pop culture because they're different they get right? used differently, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so at, like at different times. So, like, what what would be like? What are some like key differences that you've seen? Like, when I was doing some research, they they said that the first Amer- I found out that the first American film to feature ninjas was a 1975 movie called The Killer Elite. Yeah, and the first Western movie to start that big 80s ninja boom was a movie called Enter the Ninja in yeah. 1981. Um, both well enter the ninja is is iconic in 80s film cinema um but those yeah. ninjas are very different from the ninjas we you know we see in japanese yeah uh, like pop culture because ninjas had been in japanese cinema for a really long time since the mid 1700s i think maybe earlier maybe late 1600s they became a really popular character type and depiction in like theater and like kabuki and uh woodblock prints and things so some of that gets blended in where because it's fairly historical you know like 16 1700s uh but those depictions are all very theatrical but have really flavored how people then look at earlier records of what would actually be like potentially perhaps like shinobi activity so there's a whole lot of looking backward with a particular image in mind and then trying to find like evidence of that. Right. And there are a bunch of historians who have been like, all right, rein it in everyone. Like not every secretive act or um, like bit of espionage or assassination done in the past that we find in record is actually like ninja in the way that we think of it. You know, that whole trained within a clan, live in a secret location, learn specialized techniques, highly trained, get hired as like a mercenary, perhaps kind of magical and, you know, have like specific weapons and techniques that would be referred to as ninjutsu. But like, that is a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. What about like a historical <laughs> text like the um, Bansen Shukai? The Bansen Shukai, yeah. So um, that is 
I believe it was produced by the two heads of Iga and Koka, which are considered like centers of ninja training. Not the only, but they kind of were thought of as the best. And so if you ever hear about ninja in Japan, they're going to be like, oh, Iga, especially Iga and Koka together. And Iga still like sells itself as like the place of ninja. There's a ninja museum. There was that ridiculous issue, I think, like five or six years ago, where someone on NPR said that Iga was experiencing a labor shortage. And so they were having a hard time finding people to uh, role play as ninja at their museums <laughs> and events. What? And a whole bunch of people took that as Iga has a ninja shortage. And like... <laughs> People around the world started contacting the government of Iga and was like, I'm ready to be a ninja, sign me up. <laughs> I've received the call. <laughs> I, I hear you, the signal. <laughs> yeah. We so, see that. Like, we said again also in Breath of the Wild. Yeah. <laughs> With the Yiga clan. Oh, yeah, Yiga. that's right. I forgot yeah. about Yeah. yeah. That's right. So, like, yeah, there, there were these things. Iga and Koka definitely existed. They did have some of the best trains, like, spies and people who performed shinobi like stuff which is just like infiltration spying causing unrest behind the scenes but like it's really gotten blended with this whole like all dressed in black having special techniques although a lot of historians now are being very careful to say like ninjutsu is a collection of like espionage tactics and skills they are not a specific martial arts technique to the ninja. They are collections of things that let you do <laughs> secret ops kind of stuff, you know? Right, it's like tradecraft. Yeah. That, yeah. um, that all dressed in black thing, when I was doing a lot of research, um, folks were talking about how, you know, you mentioned Kabuki theater mm. and how they actually had folks who were dressed in black to be, you know, background, like shadows and, and yeah. operate things. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then they mentioned that, like, you know, if you look at early prints and woodcuts, you'd see these kabuki scenes and then there'd be somebody be like, oh. and people would yeah. be like, oh, it's a ninja, but it's actually a stagehand. Yeah. Um, and, and they then still later, do that in theater, right? Everyone yeah. dresses in all black leotard mm-hmm. so you don't get seen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And then but they yeah. said that they would have like stagehands who were actually a ninja character and be, ha, huh, huzzah, I'm here. Surprise. Yeah. I feel like I, I rambled a little and got away from the original question. It was, um, what is a ninja? And I think you kind of brought up the, the, the the definition of the ninja is kind of like changed because of like tourism pop culture and you know yeah and then like a cultural nostalgia or just like the 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 process of writing history as well there's a lot of romanticism and then because some of the documents that are straight up historical like coming out of the 16 and 1700s like that's very much historical but they're also already looking back like there's a few hundred years between like the Sengoku period and when some of these uh, ninja manuals like the Banzan Shukai were actually published and uh, the Banzan Shukai itself I've read some stuff that they think this document was produced because Iga and Koka wanted to prove to the um the ruler of Japan at the time, that they were the original and the best, and so should continue to be considered that and to be hired. Because mm. after a certain point, anyone who could say, like, I'm from this region and I can do that job you want would probably get hired. 
but Iga and Coco are like, no, please don't. Like, <laughs> over here, hi. <laughs> we have the book on it. Uh, but yeah, history is a mess. And there's a lot of influences. And that's something to keep in mind with the North American, the Western representations of ninja. Because there are pretty distinct phases of what role ninja play within media. So some of that 70s and 80s stuff, you got to think about like what was happening in North America, especially America at the time, that influenced how what role ninja played. So a lot of the times they're super sneaky enemies. They are they are the yellow peril. They are the faceless threat. And you got to watch for some of those things in not just media of the past, but what you're going to do now is the am i making a faceless enemy that's okay to kill because they're not really human they're just an enemy and then yeah that was like 70s early 80s into the 80s and 90s we see like ninja being marketed toward children more because we get like ninja turtles and (laughs) beverly hills ninja (laughs) and (laughs) even like karate kid to a degree like some of the stuff is selling East Asian tradition and martial arts to a younger audience. And it kind of changes a little, but instead of like, yeah, it's instead of being the enemy, we now get the, a bit of a white savior thing. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The great white ninja. Yeah. Or the, like, yeah. Or the chosen one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Yep. Or that the chosen one can't be Japanese. It's like, I think this, it, oh, sorry. No, no, please go on. There's this trend, like, I think that shows with the whole Iga thing that happened in real life, this idea that traditions in particular arts, especially martial arts, are being discarded in Japan and lost, and that it is the duty of individuals from outside of the region to uphold and bring it back and re-educate people about their own traditions which is also yeah. very much that chef that thought he was doing mochi a favor. <laughs> if anyone remembers that. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. I think that was in Stanford, San Francisco. I don't remember. I, I uh, remember the mochi incident because it was, it's, it's a trend. It's a trend. Yeah. But one thing you're seeing in like cinema now is, and I noticed that um, one of our community members in the chat, but also pointed this out is they've actually, we've seen a, a shift We've seen a character like Snake Eyes, who is white canonically mm. in the G.I. Joe comics and the media, is now Asian, played by Henry Golding in the new Snake Eyes movie, which I haven't seen yet. No spoilers. Um, very excited to watch it. Um, but yeah, that's the you know, that's that's really interesting point about like the phases of the role ninja play in mm. media. Because, you know, in games like you bring up the white savior and I have this game for the hero system, and it's literally called Ninja Hero. <laughs> and, and it's got uh, like a, a white, a white dude, right, being the hero, surrounded by faceless ninjas. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's quite the read. It's quite the read. I think I got this for like three bucks at my local store. Um, <laughs> talk but, about that discount. I think talk about the discount. I think that's really interesting because one criticism I think that we sometimes get is that sometimes we talk about old eighties, seventies media. And a lot of people, a lot of people feel like it doesn't apply to today's tabletop RPG space, but I think it is 
incorrect to say that it doesn't have effects on how we actually interact with our RPGs today. Absolutely. So I've actually pulled up uh, D&D 5E's uh, take on Ninja. So if you actually do like a search of Ninja for war, all D&D 5E, two things come up. The first one is actually a monk subclass, which is called the Way of the Shadow. Oh, yeah. So which is really interesting because to preface before I read out the quote, um, monks are, in my opinion, very much East Asian coded. They're Asian coded. Yeah. A lot of people actually, from my experience, deny that. They say that monks are more like divorced from cultural stereotypes, which I think is something to unpack a lot Mm. of. But if we read Way of the Shadow, it says these monks might be called ninjas or shadow dancers, and they serve as spies and assassins. Sometimes the members of a ninja monastery are family members forming a clan sworn to secrecy about their arts and missions. Um, Other monasteries might be thieves guilds, so on and so forth. Regardless of their methods, the heads of these monasteries expect the unquestioning obedience of their students. And the reason I want to bring that up is because I think that particular passage and the way that's kind of written, if you see monks as being Asian coded, which is something that I view, and I cannot speak for other people that might not see it that way, but if you do, and then you read this text, there's an intersection there that I think is very interesting, which is that, oh, we have this way of the monk, way of the shadow, and there is a monastery devoted to uh, spies being a spy and being an assassin. Mm-hmm. And it's using the and word there uh, with unquestioning obedience. And I thought that was just very interesting about the perception of the intersection of being the nebulous idea of what a ninja is mm-hmm. and also being Asian within a tabletop RPG. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. any anybody who would say that the monk isn't Asian coded is is lying. Yeah, I mean, like they have they straight up have chi. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. yeah. they, they straight up have chi. Um, when you first and, told me that the ninja and D&D were a form of monk, I was like, oh, because they were the Asian ones and that was yeah. the easiest thing to do because ninja most certainly were not monks. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's that interesting, whole like, religious thing is like weird. So what's interesting is that ninja in older editions, if they were actually like written directly, were not a subclass or like a specialization of other classes. They were trained as a ninja. Like that was mm. their role. That was their occupation. So in 3.5, uh, AD&D didn't have ninjas as playable race or playable class, except Oriental Adventures, which had like other baggage and whatnot. Mm. But in 3.5, level one, you could be a ninja. And like you have a special specialization and whatnot. That was interesting because ninja were basically built on the rogue archetype, mm. but were worse at it. Basically everything that a rogue could do, a ninja could do worse. <laughs> and it felt very, very, it felt very jarring. Uh... Do you rem- do you remember what book that was in, Steve? Uh, Ninja are in, in complete, complete, war? N- complete adventurer or complete okay. scoundrel. I forget. Obviously, okay. when I say that, people were going to be like, Ugh. but yeah, um, yeah. You know, so I think it's complete adventurer in some ways. So I so I'll say this about like the older editions of D anD D, and I'm not like defending them. Like there are very clear balance issues with the old ones, just because they were so loose with that like license. Everybody was just making stuff. Um, but you're right. Like the, I think the thing to focus on is this: like, why monk? Yeah. Why not rogue in the current edition? And like, I get that. 
a lot of the idea of like spying and infiltration has to do with like dark and shadows but like uh the best way to get i don't know to stand out is to like dress in black and skulk around even at night it's just weird like (laughs) Mm -hmm. a lot of what was probably happening was first of all they think a lot of ninja actually came from lower classes or were from the samurai class but were really good at doing infiltration stuff and that means like blending in that doesn't mean dressing in black at night that means like dressing like a farmer and not raising suspicion a lot of the time like you know how to stay calm and play a role and not get caught and to gather information so some of this like shadow thing like yeah it happens fine but that's not all that there is to it and yeah. the whole monk thing i really think it was just a matter of convenience for that D example like where do we put the asian ones over there kind of yeah and i think to help illustrate that like if you look at the rogue archetypes like when you specialize as a rogue there is assassin you can be an assassin there is the scout there Mm -hmm. is the thief there's the inquisitive and then there's the phantom so like D doesn't shy away from the idea that a rogue mm-hmm. which is generally in my opinion like culturally agnostic given other context and whatnot it could depend but a rogue is generally culturally agnostic and they're not shying away from the supernatural idea and fantasy of it mm-hmm. but yet the idea of a ninja because of the baggage of it the cultural baggage is relegated to being a monk subclass and that's mm-hmm. i think telling and yeah yeah you you could you could say like oh maybe they didn't want to have like an explicitly asian coded thing and call it ninja um and so that's why they made it a subclass um it also like my first reaction when you were saying that is like all those all those things that you mentioned i was like a ninja would do all of those things Mm -hmm. but these are all like subclasses of the of the rogue right it's like you can't you have to be an assassin you can't be a thief or you can't be a scout and like these are all things that you would do and i think that's just um very much a symptom of dnd's way of system and like compartmentalizing what you do in your role right um not to like defend it but like we we see this in like in other editions of DD, like in oriental adventures on page 19 they say ninjas are invisible warriors, spies and assassins practicing the skill of concealment, stealth, trickery, disguise, acrobatics, and assassination. Um, and then they say that um, their abilities and reputations are clouded in mystery. Many ascribe supernatural powers to them. Um, the ninja have done nothing to discourage these stories and may very well spread the tales themselves. Such confusion confusion only enhances their reputations, inspiring more terror at the mere mention of their name, which I think is like an interesting thing to say. Like they're not like magical Asian people who no. who do these things. They're like, yeah, we're going to make people scared of us with these stories. And that's the thing, like the whole the magical side and that of ninja across Japanese and Western um franchises or platforms or whatever like i get it like that was part of the original like take popular take on ninja 
And they totally fostered some of that. And I understand in fantasy settings, like that's something to play with and it's great. Um, mm -hmm. But like some of it gets really confined. And also your one, the one read out there, the description literally said they're assassins that are trained in the skill of assassination. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, good job. But also, um, like I said before, there are, okay, first of all, very few records in general of anyone straight up saying this was like shinobi activity or this was a shinobi, someone specifically trained as a ninja to do this stuff and carried out this mission. That's very rare. Um, even more rare is any record of them assassinating anyone or being hired to do so. Uh, the Bansan Shukai kind of makes everything complicated, even though it was written later. And it says any ninja worth his salt wouldn't end up in the history books because you've done your job if no one records it, which I think is just a way to cover their asses. Because just because the ninja aren't writing about what they did doesn't mean anyone else is going to be like not suspicious or including that in yeah. things that they write. So that's kind of added to this whole mystique though. Like it's all so secret. It's also not done despite the fact that the ninja manual was written by two of the largest ninja <laughs> towns in Japan. They straight up wrote a manual and showed it to the emperor. You know, <laughs> like, uh, it's, I get that it's super fun. It's just uh, some of the stuff you have to kind of keep track of. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned, I... you say Shinobi. Like, yeah. yeah, like what I is the a, what is, what's the difference? Is there? A yeah, difference? that was my question too. There's no. I've certainly heard both. But. Yeah, there's no real difference. Um, it's two different readings of the same word, so it's ninja or shinobi no mono. So it's ninjutsu or shinobi no jutsu. It's just the character reading is different, and you might see earlier stuff like. 1990s and earlier referring to ninja more often and more recently people have switched to shinobi or you'll see like uh a lot of academics are like no we're going to use shinobi to distance ourselves from more popular imagery so we're going to go with this other reading which is supposed to be older and more like acceptable in the past so it's the exact same thing is it the same characters what do you mean? No, no so you mean like it, oh, it yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. The, the actual like um it's uh Shino Shinobu, I think, and Sha, like the person or a person who does like it's essentially just people who do um sort of not secretive, I don't want to use that word, but more the concealed or whatever stuff i'm failing at words it's, right it's now the, it's their branding yeah oh my god i uh, were you gonna segue into that thing that i wrote in the notes about branding and uh, uh, the word ninja uh i i was but first i wanted to ask a question that's off script yeah. a little bit no and because i have dr yasui here uh i'd like to ask because i know there's the ninja word which is very popularized shinobi is getting obviously more popularized but in naruto and other media the word kunoichi kunoichi yeah a female ninja 
so I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so maybe it's like another branding type situation where this is a different word, a different character. Um, I think that is also very interesting because you also see that being used specifically in Naruto and other media for like mm-hmm. specific narrative purposes. There are a lot of like B movies too that are like Kunoichi. And I think it is just to emphasize that they're femme instead of not. And I don't always know why, but I, yeah. I might be it because they're up. a lady associated with dragons, but we don't, we can never know. That, we can it, never you know. know. It's really funny because that game Black Desert actually has two separate classes, the Konoichi and the Ninja. Oh. Okay. The two separate classes. So if you play a Konoichi, you have to play a femme character. If you play a ninja, you have to play a mask character. That's very um, in the style of Korean MMOs. Though. Yeah, it very much is. Yeah. They really like to gender lock classes. Yeah. Love for that. Some so like yeah. I there's this thing and you know, we see this a lot. Like I wrote in my notes like the appropriation of the word ninja. Like it upsets me. And I put a note here to note Daniel's frustration. <laughs> when you search asterisk. ninja asterisk, uh, when you search ninja, the first thing you see is the gamer. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler, Tyler Blevins. Oh yeah. Okay. If you search it in academic uh like um journal searches all you get is stuff about like coding and security (laughs) so both ninja and shinobi are like processes and programs that's what i got i was like oh so many papers oh no (laughs) oh interesting yeah there are very few papers there are a lot of um public academic books that you can get uh i would stay away from anything published before like 2000 but like you're not getting a lot of academic stuff, even though it's everyone's so interested. We yeah. should get a list from you of, of interesting sources. Reading list. Oh, Reading yeah. list. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Kevin, you were going to say something. Um, um, I was just thinking going off of what Steve was saying about like D&D and like it's so it's so interesting to me in like the greater in like sort of out of tabletop that like ninjas are like so narrow in Western media in like their function and their presentation, whereas like functionally they are the same as spies would be in Western media and w- spies have like such this wide breadth of things they can do like there's the political thriller and then there's the assassins and then there's like this romance spy and like ninjas are just the assassin or like the faceless enemy yeah pretty much and it's just like functionally same thing as far as i'm i understand and it's just uh, it's really interesting that like this asian coded one is like so narrow and like really just it's really constricted whereas the sort of western typically white coded version has so many more options and is like able to do so much more and also the things that the other one can do so, so it's like hot take hot take kevin is james bond a ninja no <laughs> james bond fights ninjas he fights ninjas that is yes. one of the early that was uh, the early ones i mean really early popular representations yeah sean connery really tried in that one where he did yellow face he tried so hard oh Ooh, god you brought that up okay great yeah Tiger to hey we, we we don't shy away from that stuff here um oh you god. know what's what's interesting you, you know kevin you mentioned that like really narrow sort of depiction of a ninja mm-hmm. in preparing for like talking about assassins you know in in ad and d there are seven rogue kits mm-hmm. that are kind of related to assassins but kind of cover these different things there's literally a rogue kit called the barber 
and you frequent bazaars and you dispense advice and you cut people's hair and you provide medical care. But you're also like a social character. There's like the beggar thief, the holy slayer, who's literally like the Hashashin, the Assassin's mm-hmm. Creed character. Um, and then there are like wandering thieves and merchant rogues. Mm. Um, it's very interesting that in other editions of D&D, you actually see, you know, this kind of diversity of potential ways to play this one character. Um, I think it's really interesting to think of a ninja with all these things like espionage, mm-hmm. you know, thievery, assassination. Yeah. There are like specific to think... terms too. Like even oh, yeah? in some of the records, there are different types of ninja depending on what they do best. There's a straight up term for one that's really good at laying still in the grass and gathering information. Like, What's the term? I think it's like, it's something to do with grass. So it's like Kusa something, something. I'm just going to write in my notes. I would one, have to look it up. One who is really good at lying yeah. still in grass. Yeah. So like if you have patience and can sit in the grass for like in the long grass for a long time, that's what you were hired to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I hold my turn. Yeah. I wait and there. I watch. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny. But yeah, that idea of options, too, kind of comes back to the whole Westerner taking up mm -hmm. Eastern traditions Mm -hmm. and and combining that with what Steve read about the whole super faithful to your master, never step out of line kind of thing, is that we see in the 80s and 90s a lot of that whole non-Japanese person becoming a ninja, Mm -hmm. becoming steeped in this Eastern tradition, is that it's done as an act of rebellion and anti-establishment rather than an adherence to tradition, even though it is still. So like I read a whole paper about the Ninja Turtles and how they're sort of like doing away with all of the typical like Western family obligations and they're just teenagers doing whatever they want and that they get to live outside the social norms because they're mutants and turtles, but also ninjas. Like it's really wild how much <laughs> this person read into Ninja Turtles. But like you see, kind of kind of that theme in other mm-hmm. things. Like you're outside of society, you're kind of doing your own thing. And I guess we just got to say that that was also a narrative we saw in Japan about shinobi in the past mm-hmm. and in the present. That mm-hmm. they were. Uh, not beholden to anyone in particular, even to the people who were training them. I'm sure there was relationships there, but it wasn't sort of that strict, like you do everything I say, hold these rocks for 10 hours kind of crap, you know, like Mm -hmm. there was a real, you are, I don't know, not doing things the same way and Mm. often used for like political upheaval purposes and some of this gets messed up with that idea that they weren't samurai that's another big one to watch for if anyone's description of a ninja is just the opposite of a samurai like you're not going too deep there if anyone's like ooh, they fought from the shadows instead of standing square and staring each other down with swords it's like samurai didn't do that either right like What's and, his name? Musashi? Like one of the yeah. best ones. 
some of his duels he won by hiding in the bushes and attacking his opponent early you know didn't he show up late he showed up purposefully late to one to frustrate the guy he showed up late one time too in a rowboat took a sweet time he on the way over whittled one of the oars down into a stabbing stick and killed his opponent with a sharpened oar instead of his sword like he was so like we call that a pro pro gamer move Read some of his like yeah. his stuff. Sorry. Like this idea of that super noble romantic samurai has been used to kind of create the image of the not so noble and very behind shadow kind of ninja thing. But mm-hmm. it's like that's that's a lot of like fabrication <laughs> on yeah. both sides. Yeah, it's like, oh, we are Iga. We made this manual. Ninjas come from here. Yeah, look at us. <laughs> Um, the best hire us and and the (laughs) they were all like nah starting with like oda nobunaga he was not about iga and koka he wiped out iga so hard and koka was like oh please no we'll be we'll be loyal to you he's like all right fine (laughs) we didn't make this wait so who made the bonsen shukai is that iga or koga i am under the impression that they both kind of had a hand in it okay but i would have to fact check that i think it was the head like the two really high ups at the time kind Work of together. went in on it, but um, I'm not sure why I have that impression and <laughs> would need to check a source. Yeah, we we can look into that after and then put it in the show notes. I, I love this the the theme of anti establishment in the character because that's something that you don't see a lot of in classes in D and D and TTRPGs in general. It's like, hey, this character is, you know, they act, you know, in these very nuanced ways and. You know, maybe they're a mercenary. Maybe they have a political agenda. And I would love to kind of focus on that and the idea of revolution, yeah. um, especially with the release of Unbreakable Revolution. Um, Kevin, I would love to talk about Days of Powder, Plunder, and Plot. So for those of you who don't know, Unbreakable Revolution is, is it technically volume two? Do we confirm that? I should have asked. Uh, by name, it is not Volume 2, but it officially is the second release of the Unbreakable series by Unbreakable Publishers. The second Unbreakable book, Unbreakable yes. Revolution, uh, is a collection of Asian-centric adventures that showcases the versatility of Asian stories with a plethora of tabletop role-playing systems and rule sets uh, centralized around this theme of um, revolution. And when Jackie was like, Hey, can can you do like an uh, an unbreakable thing on Asians represent? I was like, yeah, yeah, no doubt. I got you. What's what's cool? What 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 goes with ninjas? Pirates. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think this actually happened. I don't want to throw Jackie under the bus. <laughs> By say Jackie from Unbreakable said that ninjas are pirates. He did not say that. Um, now you've said it. And someone could clip that. <laughs> I mean, that's like the classic pairing. Who's gonna win, a ninja or a pirate? That's like the classic oh. like pop culture pairing. The deadliest warrior, ninja. Exactly. Pirates. I hate that you brought that up. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. Did, did, did all of you watch that show? It was I the I, that episode was worst. the worst. Yeah. The, like, I'm getting mad now. Get that, did you watch? Did you ever watch the show? Okay, so 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 there was this show on Spike TV called Deadliest Warrior, and then yeah. each episode, I've oh. watched, I think oh. one of them before. Each episode, they would basically, for the audience, take one historical warrior from one culture and then another, and then basically say, who would win in a fight? And then they would do these not so scientific. Yeah. And like they they divorced like 
the warriors completely from the cultural context in which they fought and, and the environments. It's, oh. it is very like, it is white privilege, toxic, toxic masculinity, all like roll into one Spike TV show. That's the entire channel. Spike TV is just like white privilege and, and toxic masculinity all rolled into a, a channel. But that particular one pisses me off so much because you watch that and you watch the Asian man who is talking through like the best of his ability of what to do. But everyone else on the show is white and they very, you can tell he's like trying to make it a good piece of media to consume, but he's getting direction to like, not say certain things point. Like the biggest point here is that they don't allow the ninja to use any gunpowder. And that is the biggest piece of bullshit. Like, I, if you're going to have pirates versus ninjas and you're going to say, oh, the ninja doesn't get gunpowder, well, then, like, what are we even talking about here? That's and a, it, like, it, they know ninja guns, me right? off. Yeah, yeah, they had guns. And, oh, and they did they these awful, so, awful so, yeah. reenactments. So it pisses me off because it actually flows into this idea. And this is actually a very harmful idea that any anyone outside of the West was savage and like mm-hmm. couldn't develop technology like the West could because they were so enlightened. And that has real ramifications. This is justification or it helps to justify violence against certain people. So that particular episode, I think, is actually a piece of propaganda. But and also I, like what pirates are we talking about here? Yes. <laughs> That's true. They're uh, Captain Yeah, it, of Captain course it was like Jack Sparrow. Pirates yeah. that they featured, not like no mention of the fact that like some of the most prolific pirates in the world were of uh Eastern and Southeast Asian descent and were on those waters and Yeah. It still do to this day in some cases. And it's just it yeah, just again, so, like so, just very narrow boxes so, so, for Asian. So people. Kevin yeah. I am also Viet, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I actually know very little about like the pirate history. From like a Viet lens, mm-hmm. I've done my own research from like a Chinese lens and whatnot mm-hmm. because that's a little more accessible when you like yeah. Google it. Mm-hmm. But could you walk me through kind of like pirates and how that intersects with Vietnamese culture and history? My my understanding is mostly similar to yours. It's it's a lot more accessible, especially uh, for a only only an English speaker like myself, uh, for to find more examples of Chinese and Japanese piracy and like sort of sort of like tangential mentions of southeast asian piracy like they're mentioned as like the sort of the opposition in reference to uh chinese naval naval uh history and such or like even to the french naval history and when they were coming around or the portuguese and it's much less there's not many accounts that i'm able to find in sort of that are accessible to me of vietnamese specifically piracy of like sort of that earlier age and like there's 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 like stuff available today of like sort of Southeast Asian piracy. That's much more from a Western, like sort of news media lens. And like, they vary like, Oh, you should be afraid because like, if you're sailing through those waters, like you better watch out for those pirates. They're going to kidnap you. I'm like, yeah, they're a threat, but like, let's not like blow this out of proportion the way, like, like it's a whole thing. And I just, I, I, I sort of like speaking of the, the adventure as Daniel brought it up. Like um, I, I, I have a, I really enjoy the fantasy of like the, of like sort of that age of sail Navy, Navy sort of combat and life life and sort of that 
adventure and i kind of just wanted to marry that with like that i know that there were very capable southeast asian like sort of pirates and sailors and navies and they don't get highlighted so much and like so did the french at the time and i kind of just wanted to get back at the french who colonized vietnam i just want to give i just want to get some really good some good punches in on the french in this way that I, <laughs> I, I i i super empathize with the idea that you know, you, you see Vietnamese people and Southeast Asian people kind of like in these very small waterways between mm-hmm. like these houses that are on the water and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's foolish to to think that these people didn't master and learn mm-hmm. how to take advantage of the resource of the ocean. Yeah. So I think that is very much like a narrative that is harmful towards Southeast Asian folks. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I am personally very curious to know how you came about this idea that you wanted to write this story about these French colonizers Mm -hmm. and like the Vietnamese struggles and like how you went about that process of creating the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I uh, primarily, I drew on real life history uh, for those that are unaware, the French colonized Vietnam uh, sometime in the, if I can quote myself in another work that I worked on in, Recarnations of a Black Grave, where I wrote a primer on the historical background of Vietnam in reference to French uh, colonialism. The French colonized Vietnam around the 1800s, some, somewhere in the mid-1800s after helping Emperor Nguyen uh, reclaim his empire and then just kind of turned on them after helping them win that and t- sort of took over a majority of the landmass of the, what what is currently known as Vietnam. And they those being two very disparate land masses france and vietnam the french would come over on their ships and the the vietnamese people being a very heavily water focused people being a in a large river delta and being surrounded on water on for most of the for most of its landmass are very familiar with the water and have a long history of sailing both like a for as long as historical records can go and i was very interested in like sort of revolutions and like not naval combat is super it's not super well explored in tabletop i think it's it's kind of very kitschy in like it's like you'll you'll get you get like 7c and a couple smaller tabletop rpgs but like that's it and like those are pretty niche Mm -hmm. and i wanted to bring this a little a little bit more accessible but also bring it into a little bit of a niche in that it's referenced in southeast asia and i and the as as the French colonized uh, Vietnam, I uh, the Vietnamese, of course, they rebelled in ways that they could, and I wanted to bring that in a way that players could engage with. And um, I introduced this conflict where in which players are the crew of a given ship, the uh, the I I cannot remember the Vietnamese translation, but it's the water deer, which is a uh, an, an animal I love a lot and which I named the ship after. And they are like sort of contracted to go capture, go follow track down this large, this large French naval vessel for some very important thing that they will later discover um, is not, is a treasure that's more important than gold, especially in the context of revolution. And I don't think we're going into too many spoilers here. So if you want to find out what that treasure is, you can go pick up on Breakable revolutions over on drive through yeah. RPG right now. Keep that interest. Is, is, I, your, is your adventure okay. uh, set in a time where the French have just begun colonizing? Because it, I believe the French actually had several attempts to yes. subjugate the Vietnamese people. Um, 
So where whereabouts does your adventure take place? Mm-hmm. And how does the influence of French culture and peoples mm-hmm. influence mm-hmm. the overall world of your one shot? Mm-hmm. I... My, uh, this is, this is a sort of a, uh, a historical, uh, this is a historically inspired, but still a historical sort of insp- uh, adventure because I, I cannot claim a sort of all encompassing sort of academic uh, knowledge of French colonial history of Vietnam, but this is very well informed of like sort of deep research, research deeper than like sort of the average person, especially in the U S and my, my imagining of it was that this is a sort of because in real history, I believe there were several several attempts on the French in like that. That's true, but in such a way that the French sort of colonized Vietnam in phases. Like they took one like large section, and then they were able to like take another large section and expand those mm-hmm. sections, and like sort of take disparate sections and connect them. Mm-hmm. And my under my sort of imagining was that it's it's like somewhere around like what I would imagine is like the the French would have a strong foothold. But like there, but not in the way that like the Vietnamese people had never like sort of capitulated, but like they, it is strong enough that they are a sort of an established force in, in the, this sort of analog of Vietnam and this French analog is sort of an established force. And like, so it is a sort of the, this adventure is not like you winning the revolution, but is like sort of a major step in the revolution that against this French analog. I have to say, as like the Vietnamese diaspora myself, mm-hmm. that particular way of framing up the story, I think, is actually very accessible to pe- people like me, where being historically accurate is actually quite inaccessible to me. And there's mm-hmm. various reasons why Vietnamese history is inaccessible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is like a cultural force of what it means to be Vietnamese. And I think mm-hmm. the way you frame this up is actually very empathetic towards that. So I just want to express like my gratitude for stories like that. that. Um, And I think Unbreakable itself is a great opportunity for other folks to tell these kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was editor on Revolution as well, as well as Volume Mm -hmm. 2. And Mm -hmm. I got a chance to work with, one, people overseas, which was very Mm -hmm. challenging and very fulfilling for me. Mm -hmm. But two, really empathize with um, their particular stories. And I got to see how they intersected with my own. Mm -hmm. Um, Kevin, I think actually culturally consulted. Yeah. On, uh, on one of them that I edited. So that, that was really, really interesting. And I just wanted to express my gratitude of just history is hard. And th- mm-hmm. this goes beyond just Asian represent. This goes to like everyone who has any diaspora, even mm-hmm. those who identify as white. There's like a lot of history that gets lost purposefully for like very specific reasons. And it's often very hard to, ex- to access that history and connect with it. Mm-hmm. But having some non-zero connection to it does allow you vectors and i'm going to say mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. to connect with it on your own terms and it will never be perfect and i think you have said that very explicitly that this connection is not perfect mm-hmm. but i think it is very genuine and i think that type of art is very powerful in today's climate so Yes, my, my 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 little like soapbox there, uh, Daniel. I did interrupt you. I know you had a question, but I just had to gush for a little bit. Yeah. No, look, look. I'm I'm happy to just sit back and let you gush because I I didn't have a question. I was just gonna gush. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so I was just gonna gush. So if I can continue here with, keep, with more, keep gushing, yeah, with more it. questions here. So we talk about pirates and mm-hmm. like uh, the Vietnamese culture and whatnot. So mm-hmm. could you tell me how? 
a typical person who like plays tabletop RPGs, how is a Vietnamese pirate in your campaign different than what a pirate that they might see in like Pirates of the Caribbean, which is, you I think, what? like a big like media influence. Sort of uh, circling to my point on the way ninjas are portrayed in Western versus Asian media, they're kind of not that different. You, anything a Caribbean pirate can do, a, one a pirate in this adventure could do, and like a Southeast Asian pirate in real historical, like the real world of that period could do. Like they they have ships, they have gunpowder, they have swords. They can. It's historically it was never smart to like just go swing across a, a rope and go board another ship by yourself when they all all got guns and swords but they could do it you could do it in this venture if you wanted and it's that's like really something that i think i i didn't want to explicitly say in this adventure but like i just wanted to like sort of functionally i i didn't make a new class for like these pirates or anything i this this adventure is optimized for a second for for the black hack which is an OSR it. system, but it is being OSR, it's accessible to a lot of different systems. And it's, it's the adventure is designed much more as like sort of, these are broad narrative points that you can do and like suggestions of mechanics and not so much like it's not super restricted to the system. So you can take it into 5e if you like, you can take it into something like uh, Blaze of the Dark, Bands of, or anything like that, Morkborg if you like, yeah. any of those like types of games and any. There's no like class. So like mechanically, just like in real life, mechanically, anything a Western quote unquote pirate could do. One of these Southeast Asian pirates could do. So knowing that, you know, mechanically, there is no significant difference that you Mm -hmm. might see like, oh, this is like a Vietnamese pirate ship versus Mm -hmm. a non-Vietnamese pirate ship in D&D 5e. I'm actually curious to how you guide the GM and players to signify that, you know, what, this is a Vietnamese story. We're mm-hmm. telling about revolution. Mm-hmm. What what kind of guidance did you provide in your text? I think I didn't I didn't provide any explicit guidance, but like sort of ex sort of Im, um, implicitly the sort of the tools available to like the the characters are much different than the tools available to the opposition. The sort of the Vietnamese analog characters have a much smaller a much more narrow ship that it's designed to both fare out in open water and as well in river narrow riverways whereas the french analog ships are much wider they're galleons they're made for like trans and they're made for trans uh ocean like voyages they're made to carry a lot more cargo and like the pirates they're a lot smaller they're meant to be faster they're hit and run and things like that and like the sort of there are like sort of suggestions for like like boarding mechanics and like how it would work and those are affected by like their ship is bigger than yours Mm -hmm. you gotta climb their ship where your your ship is smaller and faster if they if you are in a bad situation you can get away easier but like getting on there it's gonna be a lot harder they've got more guns than you that's gonna be an issue Mm. i'm i'm really happy to hear that because i think a lot of times this difference in environment gets misread in tabletop RPGs and especially in D and D as a kind of savagery mm-hmm. where the idea that they have wider ships being French and having like yes. that kind of climate is yeah. seen as like a more civilized way of having a ship. Mm-hmm. Whereas in your adventure, I'm getting the feel that actually this idea of building a ship for environment a mm-hmm. is not going to translate to environment B. And in yeah. fact, the people who live there, they aren't, their technology is exactly what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. They have filled their niche as they need to, knowing mm-hmm. that they are human beings as well. 
And mm-hmm. I find that to be a very refreshing piece to show in Dungeons and Dragons because I feel like Dungeons and Dragons itself fails many times to show this nuance. So, yeah. I, so again, I'm uh, here. I'm a fucking gushing. I'm just gushing. Can I can I take over and gush about some yeah. stuff that I think are relevant? Please do. Uh, and then I've also got a, if I I've gush anymore, a question. If I gush anymore, I'm just gonna like be unusable for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> I mean. I mean, we should go back to Steve gushing because I really like this. Because Steve, I like. Okay, here's the thing: I like seeing you be passionate about the topic and what we're talking about because I, I think, I mean, that comes from the heart, and that's real, right? This is a reason. This alone is one reason to buy Unbreakable Revolution, right? I'm looking at one of the things I think you do a really good job of is one of the things that you'll see in like some other. Um, adventures that feature multiple cultures is that they'll create a sense of another by putting um, pronunciation notes just mm-hmm. for the Asian names. Mm-hmm. But what I've loved, what I love about this yeah. is that in this adventure, you put pronunciation notes for both the Vietnamese and the French names. Mm-hmm. Which uh. I think is a really cool detail. <laughs> yeah. a really cool detail. Um, so I worked as uh, a sensitivity reader. So I was one of the two sensitivity readers on this volume. And your adventure is drastically different from the one that I edited. I edited the uh, adventure that came in the chapter before yours. Um, the big rat, don't eat my millet. Uh, it's a right. Chinese adventure. Um, but what I really thought was cool is that this was for the black hack. Because mm-hmm. I think the black hack is excellent. Um, and I love that, you know, one thing that's really great about this is that all the different adventures in this book don't say this is for OSR games mm-hmm. because you say this is for a specific game system. And mm-hmm. then you talk about similar ones because then you could use this for like Knave mm-hmm. or you could use this for the, the white hack if you wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, I think that very, <laughs> I see this selfishly as like a fan of OSR products um, is that I think that Unbreakable Revolution is a great way to A, really uplift Asian folks who are fans of the OSR genre, mm-hmm. right? Because when you think about the OSR, a lot of people are like, oh, the OSR sucks or the OSR is bad. Yeah. And I take that very personally because A, like I have published in the OSR space mm-hmm. and I am a fan. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that it also hurts, you know, marginalized mm-hmm. folks who are in a similar position. And so I think Unbreakable Revolution is a really good way to introduce more uh, people would say more trad gamers mm-hmm. to osr systems which i think mm-hmm. is really cool while mm-hmm. highlighting like the weaknesses of trad games like 5e D when you were talking about you know the sort of the naval combat i'm actually looking at this right now and my my sunday group has literally just got their own ship and they are going to be sailing across the sea and i am one hondo gonna use this I missed the um, session where they chose a crew. <laughs> oh, you missed a you missed a fantastic session. We we had we had a three. It was actually it turned into a. Emma was at a wedding, but yeah. our group had a four hour session where it was just job interviews for ridiculous pirates that I made. So I'm showing up to and. A crew that I had no say in, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> like most crews, like yeah. most, most ship crews, I can imagine. Yeah. Is, is, is great. So I, I wanted to ask a question, um, mm-hmm. and this comes from my lack of understanding of Vietnamese culture and history. Mm-hmm. So on page um, 33 of yes. the book, 
Um, oh, first of all, I'll highlight page 30. I love how there's a picture of the ship. Love yeah. that. To give people like an understanding. Because like to me, that ship looks very similar to like the Chinese junk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they- like for like those who are, un- who are un- uh, as familiar, the Chinese were once also colonizers of Vietnam and like yep. sort of in the way. And so like and they, they are just also neighbors and like there's a lot of cultural exchange. So there's reasons like why there might be a lot of familiarity in that design and between the Chinese mm-hmm. junks and like the Vietnamese junks and the Daos and such like that. There's a lot of really interesting historical um, cultural contact between mm-hmm. um, China and Vietnam, like very like specifically after the spring and autumn period and the Warring States. Um, there were like a group of people called the Baiyue who mm-hmm. went south to Vietnam and set up mm-hmm. their own kingdoms there after they were displaced mm-hmm. by the by the Qin. Um, mm-hmm. Really interesting stuff. But I wanted to call that out. The second thing is more of a question. Um, no. First, I'm going to gush, and then I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. On page 33, <laughs> there is a wonderful piece of art. A fucking fantastic piece of art. And unfortunately, our new format, we aren't actually showing it on screen. Um, go buy Unbreakable Revolutions. Um, but whoever the artist was did a fantastic job. And you've got a character who's wearing, like, I would love to know about the hat that they're wearing. I would love mm-hmm. to know about the clothing. I also love that this pirate character looks confident and mm-hmm. they aren't a scoundrel. They look like they're defending themselves. I also mm-hmm. like that you've put guns here. But I've got two questions. One, yes. can you tell me about that hat? Because it looks dope. And two, why are they barefoot? Uh, let me, this is a... Um... If it, I, I unfortunately on this computer that I'm using cur- currently, I don't have a copy of the PDF. This is the piece of art where she has the wide she's flat gun hat. Yeah, she's with holding the, a, uh, like the a rim pistol. Side. So traditionally, the the association with v- Vietnamese and like generally East Asian and Southeast Asian folks is the conical like sort of rice straw hat, which is like it it is that is an authentic presentation like it is you is used historically it's used in that time period it's used like today in the real world but it's also like not the only like sort of piece of fashion especially in like sort of in all in that generally in asia or particularly in in vietnam and this is just another sort of made of the same material another straw hat i cannot recall the name of it but i'm super familiar with it it's it's like this big it's it's much more like high fashion and less function because the conical hat is much more a sort of um historically there was no middle class but like sort of a more peasant class uh sort of piece of attire it's functional it sits mm-hmm. on the head a lot easier it's well it's well suited for like labor and such and whereas this this was much more a piece of fashion because it doesn't sit on the head as well because it's a large piece and it's it doesn't balance as well and like there's these these large ties that come down and these are Sometimes you would see them like t- sort of tied under under the shin, but often you would just see them held in the hands in a couple like sort of old art pieces that I've seen. And I, I really wanted to feature like I, I wanted to feature a piece of fashion that's like sort of tangential to the sort of very iconic and sometimes stereotypical like conical hat that's like but it's it breaks from that norm and it's not just an invention of my own. It's this is historically and it's just genuinely accurate to the culture and like it's i i wanted to show i wanted i i asked worked with this 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 artist um i had two artists that worked with me on this let me go through my discord list and so find i just them. i just found a really cool picture i just put a link in our zoom chat of this hat um yes. like that's 
really cool. Oh, I know, you know what hat. that looks like. I know this hat. Oh. Did it ever? Sh- yeah, it's really neat. I'm trying to look for. It's called a. Oh, I'm going to say that wrong. Non Kwai Tao. That is a sick hat. Okay, so I'm going to post that. I so think like, for that's our it. for our listeners here, I would describe it as a mooncake that floats above the head. Mm-hmm. So it is designed as if it like doesn't even touch your head, mm-hmm. but it has two very large tassels uh, and like a, a very large strap for the user and whatnot. It is clearly like an idea of like elegance and mm. prestige. Uh, so I, f- I found it. I if found you it. were if you were a person who looks at this hat, you would be like that person wears this hat for a very specific reason, and mm-hmm. it's not because it's functional. <laughs> yeah, so, so it feels it's like a headdress instead of exactly. A hat. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the name is supposed to be a combination of the words hat, strap, and tassels. Um, and uh, that is so interesting. So it is uh, a traditional, it's a hat traditionally worn by women as an accessory to finer garments. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool. And then they would, um, they would have like little embellishments with like silver ornaments. So, so what's really funny to me is that like being Vietnamese diaspora, I, I saw this picture and immediately like I got rushed back to my childhood. Like I, I've seen this hat before, yeah. but it fell out of fashion for yeah. various reasons. Um, but this is absolutely like a Vietnamese hat. And like, mm-hmm. I, I see it and I feel very much like the author and artists had to very much like, be aligned in it because it's hard to show these cultural signifiers um, in a way that's subtle, nuanced, but also very powerful. So I cannot wait to get my copy of Unbreakable <laughs> because I need to see this art in my hands because it's going to bring me a lot of it's, joy. It's yeah. it's incredible. And for those of you who are um, thinking about buying, there is a delay in getting the physical mm-hmm. copies of Unbreakable. I wanted to call yes. that one out. Um, there was a, there was like, um, I actually really like how. Did you catch a fly? A fruit fly? I got a moth. A oh. moth. Oh, yeah. That's worrying in my opinion. No, it's it's the, the building we can get them occasionally it's it's all good um sorry about that um i um i really appreciate their commitment to like the quality of the product and how they didn't rush to go and be like we're gonna print this subpar thing mm-hmm. so if you do want to see the physical copy um the physical prints of unbreakable are quite nice like unbreakable one steve i don't know if you have it on you right now you usually well, it's Kevin, all it's all the way back there kevin's got it over it's, there <laughs> It's a it's a it's a nice oh, blurred no. out thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got to do oh, that. There we go. Let me, oh, let me oh. just unblur my background. Y'all can see the mess of my room. Yeah, no, it's okay. Un- unblur really that funny. and flip to your adventure on Unbreakable Volume One uh, with the Owl's Eye. I would yes. love to. I would love to, yeah. to showcase that on our stream. Podcast viewers obviously can't see that, but the Owl's Eye is like a a great cultural signifier of Vietnamese culture, but also has a like cultural baggage. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was a great that you added that in there because we can be very surface level and be like, oh, it's a beautiful piece of garment, so on and so forth. And if the group wants, we can talk about like influences, like why is it such a prevalent piece of garment? What does it mean? How did it come about? I think it's great when, you know, we take ownership of these things. 
right? And use them in our work. So I don't want to have my the second half of my question go unanswered because I really want to answer. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Answer my question. <laughs> answer my question. I want uh, I want the knowledge. I want to do the with the knowledge in my head. Uh, for the audience. <laughs> not that little kid. The, have you seen that yeah. have y'all seen that video of the a kid? It's like a little kid who's like <laughs> opening it at school and he's got the pages of the book and he goes to get the knowledge and then flips the page. <gasps> So that cute. sounds fucking so great. Um, anyways, um, I want to know why she's barefoot. Like, is was that that seems to be an intentional choice, and I, I'd love to know why. Historically, I am not sure how accurate this is, but in my own history, I found that on boats, I got around a lot easier when I was barefoot because things are wet and slippery, and I don't know what it's like walking around in sandals. And I just imagined, like, also, like my my logic there was like, if in if they were sneaking on the ship. Like it's a lot quieter to be barefoot than to have like Ooh, traditionally yeah. the uh, sandals were. I think I think they were like dried bamboo was uh, was typically the the sandals of that time, and I, it's those those against a hardwood deck. Those are going to like make some noise, and like you just just take off your shoes, you get some more grip with your yeah. bare feet, and like typically a- Asian folks uh, walk around a little bit more barefoot. Their the feet are a little bit more calloused. You're not so it's not as um, as odd an, a sight for Asian folks to be walking around, even outside in like sort of nature to be walking around barefoot. So it's not as much a like sort of concern as it would for be for a someone of a culture that w- typically that wore shoes like sort of all the time, even even indoors. Like the French. I think that's like the French. <laughs> yeah. I, I exactly. think that's awesome because in this piece of art, so the the central character is barefoot. Mm-hmm. So in the narrative, I'm like, okay, so she was the one who boarded and, and mm-hmm. got on and led the charge. But in kind of like the background of the art, there's actually another Asian character who's wearing shoes. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, in this narrative, maybe they're coming on after. They're this main boarding party. Yep. Like, that's really cool. Okay, cool. I really wanted to know if there was like a particular reason if it was an active choice. What, Agatha? <laughs> so, I, I, I will add that not from like a Vietnamese b- background, but like from like, just Steve being barefoot has a ton of benefits for me personally. Mm-hmm. And it is very much a feeling connection with like the ground that you're on. And I don't mean spiritually. I mean like physically <laughs> uh, you can feel a lot more that's going on with your feet that's going on. If you train yourself to it. So mm-hmm. you'll actually see um, you won't see it in the Olympics anymore. Uh, I think there might be actually a rule on it, but deadlifters will wear shoes while they deadlift in the Olympics but most deadlifters I know will actually wear uh, minimalistic shoes or no shoes. I actually happen to be a barefoot deadlifter. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is because I'm trying to feel like a connection with the ground because with that much weight that I'm trying to pick up, I can't do it by bones and muscles alone. I actually have to find a way to push off the ground because it turns out the earth is a lot more capable of lifting weight than I am. Uh, so I know surprise. Um <laughs> But that is like a very like real thing that's mm-hmm. physical and it, it like it matters. Mm-hmm. And I hate that barefoot has become this synonymous with like savagery. Mm. And I, I feel like that's actually very. That's why damaging. I wanted to call it out. That's, well, that's why I wanted to call it out because this character is very regal and noble mm-hmm. looking. Mm-hmm. Um, yet they're barefoot. So I, I think that's that's really cool. Also, you know we see characters like we talked about avatar and we talk about Toph who's barefoot mm-hmm. yeah. because of the way her bending works and her mm-hmm. abilities. Actually, here's a really good example. All reviewers can experience this. Go run a hundred meters on sand, do it in shoes and do it in barefoot and tell me which is mm-hmm. easier. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's like, there There are definitely times when like barefoot is preferable, mm-hmm. but there are risks, of course. Like, obviously, we don't want to step on things because like stepping yeah. on things could be very damaging to your feet. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you get a lot of benefits from it. And I love that in this piece of art, you have both because mm-hmm. like it's I just said, mm-hmm. there's reasons to have both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd be like, if anybody who goes would be like, oh, that's like barbaric. I'd be like, are you a fan of the Lord of the Rings? Do you do you look at like the hobbits who are barefoot for the entire mm-hmm. thing? Like, it's, it's, come on. I know a lot and of like, drummers who don't wear sh- shoes while playing too. Yeah. I can, I understand why. I completely yeah. understand why. I, I don't like wearing socks. The one thing I don't get is wearing socks to bed. Oh, oh what? I, oh. I understand that in the winter. I just I get I am hot all the time. I can't. Oh, I even just though, like I make socks for a lot of them. No, I wear I them it. in shoes. As as I just I don't like <laughs> if I if if I could just not wear socks and shoes, I I would 100% just be barefoot all the time. Um but but I I love I love what you've done here <laughs> um Kevin. I really really think this is a fantastic adventure and I think there's so much amazing content in here um let me the cover and like all of the different like we've got uh, a a lot of familiar and new faces here uh like folks who i would love to you know join us on asians represent right um so i i I did the sensitivity reading for the first adventure but Mm -hmm. pam has an adventure Mm -hmm. pam our other admin on our discord server The Dovetailer has an adventure. Uh, and then there are a lot of names that I don't know, but I would like to know these people. Um, I, my good friend, uh, <laughs> yes, friend, uh, Charu Patel wrote a wrote an adventure in there for another uh, another friend, Viditya Valetti's Sword and Bear, which is in the Gun and Slinger yep. game. And like those are both, it, it is a South Asian uh, person writing a, a South Asian adventure about their South Asian culture using a game by another South Asian person. So like, there's so much synergy there. And I, I love that. And like, I being friends with both of them, I know they're both very happy that like they, they both like really clicked and like, they saw parts of each other's work that like, no, these like you, you notice this about my work and you notice this about my work because they share this same culture. And it's so it's, I, like that's not something that's explicit in the book, but like I don't know, like sort of behind the scenes, I love that they that they were able to feature that. And like I know in volume one that there wasn't there was not South Asian uh, representation. I'm so happy that we were able to get some in there, especially with folks I know that I that I really care I, about. I specifically when when I was talking, I was looking at this adventure, mm-hmm. um, the the it, first dia of Navratri. Mm-hmm. Patel. Like I really want to talk about this one because I, the art is very different from everything else. So there is good. this entire one page spread um, that I would just love to know about every single detail on it. It's on page 127 of the book would really, really want to um, talk about this. I, so, I can easily put you in touch with Charlie so, uh, in chat right now. Oh, s- send me a DM on, uh, on Twitter. Or, or Discord if you're a member of our server, um, because I, w- I would love to talk about this. Um, I, I would also like to add that Unbreakable, based on like my promotion of it and whatnot, I really try to push that for folks who are new to writing, editing, creating in the tabletop RPG space. I think Unbreakable is a very accessible way of doing it. And you have an immense amount of support 
to make a quality product. At the end of the day, you know, the entire Unbreakable team wants to make a quality product and they will give you the resources you need to bring your vision up to that level that they're looking for and beyond. So I will say that the the, the two adventures that I edited, um, the authors were so appreciative of the feedback that I was able to give. Kevin, you gave some feedback as well from a sensitivity mm-hmm. uh, perspective. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a very great community experience. And in that not only was it a great community experience, I think it's a great way to illustrate that oftentimes people think, oh, it's unbreakable. It's an Asian thing. And it's not just East Asians. Mm-hmm. It, ex- it is as wide as Asianness is an identity. And that actually is very difficult to do because we always tout that Asi- Asianness is not a monolith, but it's actually very hard to live that. It's very hard to interact with that and engage with that. And I think Unbreakable is a great way to it's funny because unbreakable is about not breaking our spirit but at the same time oftentimes we have to break apart and understand who our identities are and how they are unique and in that way we break ourselves apart and then we come back together and we make this like wonderful beautiful piece of product yeah actually i'm looking at the the uh all of the list of artists and i see that like ink is here and like i met i met Mm -hmm. ink at like was a queen queen city conquest like years ago um we still need to have ink on the podcast we, yeah. we talked about this a long time ago and then mia is also one of the artists yep. mia is actually going to be on bubble tea book club the inaugural episode uh next week yeah. and herman Lau did a whole bunch of art here herman did our magic the gathering wrap-up art yep um, oh yeah yeah so um it's so cool to see all of these different names and all these people who I don't know because people that I don't know are people that I want to know. Um, so I would love to try to have as many of these folks on the podcast if, you know, over, you know, our, our many, many episodes. But I would really? love to, if if you, Kevin, can facilitate it, let's, let's have Charu on yes. um, so we could talk about this adventure. And, you know, all of that art and all of that like visual language that I, I'm really fascinated about. Um, I, I'm going to interrupt Daniel. I'm so sorry, but yeah. I know we're going to run over, but I have to ask this question because sure. this is, this is a great opportunity. Kevin, as you're going through your research, mm-hmm. considering the, like I've already told you like in diaspora and like, it's really hard mm-hmm. for accessible stuff. What is the one piece of Vietnamese history that you researched and you were like, just wowed by it? So that I know what to look up after this episode is done. <laughs> I, I just um, it's 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 so hard because like there it's 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 my my sort of passion is like so much more the sort of this grand arc of between like the sort of in like if we romanticize it a little bit this sort of struggle between vietnam and it and it and all of these outside forces that kept like sort of pushing in on it and vietnam sort of still persisting and sort of like even though they like sort of like were on the back foot at some times and like sort of took serious losses and has experienced severe deep tragedy both at home and abroad and and it and even from within against itself that like it still persists and it still refuses to like sort of become sort of like capitulate and become something that it's not and but but also 
sort of take from all of these these sort of these other things and like because like Vietnamese culture in itself as we know it today is so heavily influenced by these cultures that were once sort of there maybe unwelcome or and well other and welcome at at times like sort of, there's a lot of french influence in the architecture and cuisine there's a lot of chinese influence in in also the the cuisine and architecture and like sort of the language of vietnamese used to be based on chinese characters the the name vietnam is der, is derivative of the previous chinese sort of designation of the area and there's so much of that sort of this this really strong persistence in the in this grand arc of Vietnamese history against otherwise really what what other folks would like sort of um, label as impossible odds. And yet it still persists is like really what what really speaks to me and like makes me really proud of my cultural her- heritage. Yeah, yeah, this history. And and I'll say I'll say this. This is. um and I'm sure Emma, you can appreciate this too. Um, you know, a lot of you know academic research is really inaccessible if you are not already based at an institution and have institutional access to materials. Yeah. Um, but that said, I mean, it's nice to have friends like like I don't have access anymore, but I I have I I just message Emma. Um, I'm not saying message Emma. What I am saying is, if you are doing research, I'm and you fo- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And like, it's worth knowing that even authors who would like to share more widely, it's that's what I was thousands yeah. of dollars to do open access. And some yeah. people can't afford to drop eight grand to have their article mm-hmm. go more broad. So, so but, what I'll say is yeah. if you're if you're doing research oh, and you does. find <laughs> like the name of a scholar who has written a paper, but you don't have access to it, send them an email. Um, I've been doing that for a project of mine. Um, shout out to uh, Dr. Olivia Milburn at Seoul National University, whose book is um, 500 US dollars. Um, and Yikes. it's too much. But yeah. uh, Dr. Milburn was super kind and just emailed me the uh, chapters that I needed um, and was super excited. Had no idea about anything TTRBG related, but was just super cool. Um, so you'll find people who have really, really niche academic focuses and who are super passionate and love what they do. Um, send them an email, be really polite about it. Send them an email, explain what you're doing, um, and how you found them. Um, and oftentimes they'll respond by saying like, Hey, you know what? This is a, um, I would love to share this with you. Um, Publishers make most of the money. So a lot of academics are just happy to have people interested and to do something fun. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all the academic papers I've published and I'll make them available for our patrons. I'll, put, I'll post them onto Patreon so people could read about smoking pipes and uh, Oh, you pottery. did like the Ontario smoking pipes? Stuff. Yeah, I did a whole thing about learning and getting high. Um, Hell yeah. So I'll post that for our patrons. Nicotinia, um, what is Rustica. it? Rustica, yeah. Rustica. Tobacco um, used to be a real, real strong. Real strong. <laughs> Vietnam, real strong. Vietnam has a great cannabis culture. I'm just going to put that out there. There's a lot to talk about. But given should... its current area on the world stage, it is very hard to find research about it because Vietnam oh. is, of course, mm-hmm. shown as a industrial, hardworking people. Mm. But I will tell you that my dad who is a farmer um he is the cannabis whisperer 
he grows things and I don't understand how he can do it in the climb that he does, but he grows things that would put people to shame in major cities. I Sorcery. Love it. <laughs> that... Cannabis comes from South and Southeast Asia. Like that's Originally, where the I didn't, plant I yeah, that's that. where the plant comes from. <laughs> we should do a plant we should do a plant episode. Yes. Well, that's, there are there are many things <laughs> there are there are many things that we could talk about. But that that said, you know what, like Kevin and Emma, I'm super grateful that you joined us for this episode on the shadow arts and revolution. Um, I have a recommendation. I we didn't really talk about it too much, but um, Emma and I were talking about it throughout the day. But I found a really cool Japanese-made and designed TTRPG about ninjas called Shinobi Gami, and it's actually really neat. It's on Drive Through RPG. It's it's been translated into English. Um, it's got like a really interesting style of. It's, it's the structure. What, what, what did you call it, Emma? It's very Japanese. So anyone familiar with Japanese RPGs or what they call table talk games, because you mm-hmm. sit around a table and you talk, mm-hmm. they are mostly D6 based, so you don't need specialized die. And it's incredibly popular to publish uh, campaign replays. They call them replays. So they just publish entire sessions like like a script and it's they try to demonstrate how to play the game through giving people a transcribed session Mm -hmm. rather than like here are the rules here's the setting here's how you build the character they're like here's how people play it now you can read all the rules (laughs) it's really interesting because like the first hundred pages or so are are just like this playthrough but it's really because it's showing you how they've intended the game to be played um, but it's really neat. It's super cool. If you're into more of like the the, the anime um, sort of ninjas that you see in like Naruto and things like that, mm-hmm. um, Shinobi Gami, cool Asian-made game. It's the first like Japanese-made TTRPG that I've read and had access to translated oh, into yeah. English. I so have I'm, Sword World. I'm super hyped. I, there's a lot. <laughs> um, I'm super hyped to to play it. Actually, I think of the the two things I might pitch to Gen Con could be like we'll play a ninja game, but I really want to lean towards like playing a volleyball game. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, I noticed in Shinobi Gummy something you would love is that one of the uh, skills that you can develop to enhance your Shinobi skills is actually food. Mm-hmm. So. <gasps> You make yourself better through eating and sharing food, and yeah, it's part of. Agatha, your are you on board now? Are you on board with this? Oh heck yes! <laughs> so maybe we should dope. do a play of this. We'll, we'll maybe we'll do a play on this as a follow up to like, huh, ninjas. We'll play an Asian ninja game, which I think could be actually really neat. Um, that said, we have a lot of people to to thank oh, for yeah. their support. And that's our patrons. That's our patrons. Thank you to all of our amazing patrons. You made it happen. We hit our first Patreon goal. We are now going to do Bubble Tea Book Club. That means we're going to live stream Bubble Tea Book Club on the last Friday of every month. Video will be exclusive to patrons only. So don't worry if you're not in a time zone where you can watch this. Um, you can go and watch it at patreon.com slash represent. I'm so happy that, you know, you know, we've been doing this because I think it's a great way for us to be able to give back to the community with Bubble Tea Book Club, um, buy new games and uh, produce Asians represent in a more sustainable way. Um, so shout out to all of our patrons. Y'all make Asians represent a, a reality. We weren't going to bring Asians represent back, you know, if we didn't do the Patreon. Um, 
and you folks, you know, are the reason why we are here right now with this amazing episode. Um, so shout out to our Disci- Disciples of the Sky Court. Those are our $5 patrons. Our $10 patrons, Guardians of the Realm, Brooke Bright, Pixel Grotto, that's Jeremy, and Daisy May, and of course, our most honorable patrons. Our most honorable patrons, we have Ryan the Wizard Hall, Metal Weave Games, Valorous Games, Dungeon Glitch slash Matt, and the most honorable, the most honorable Epic Impulse. Y'all are the most honorable people ever. I'm so happy that you're here. And you know who's also happy? The greatest ninja of all time. Marla. Right down a little bit more. Sarah. Marla always We'll switch this. back to Maine. And there's there's oh. Marla. Oh, Marla, she was hiding. hiding. She, look at the camouflage. Marla, yeah. say hi. Marla, Marla. you going to say hi? Such shadow. I know, shadow. Be great I, I know Marla. Mar- oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> Marla's, Marla's our ninja. Yeah. Marla's our ninja. Look at the way she blends into everything. She blends in with the carpet. Hunter's my Naruto, all Expert. dressed in orange and yelling all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which one is uh which which character Naruto is the one that we eat? Um, oh Choji. 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 Yes. That's Marla. Um oh. oh shit, can we do an episode on fat phobia and Asianness? Yeah, yeah okay. we one hundred percent should. <laughs> no, but we I thought we already had that set. Regardless, thank you so much to our amazing patrons who, you know, make this show a reality. Y'all are awesome. Takeaways. Go buy and break World Revolution. Learn about other Asian cultures and other game systems. And vote for all the amazing marginalized creators who are nominated for Ennies. Yes. Go vote for them and vote for Asians represented. We love you. Mm-hmm.